Welcome to DMC with a friend. Join us as we navigate through life, enter deeper, meaningful conversations, and embark on a life-changing journey towards positive change. Hi everyone, welcome to our second episode. Today, we're going to be talking about something a little bit more introspective. If you were here for a lighthearted episode, you might want to get ready and buckle up because we're going to get deep today. So today's topic is self-care and self-improvement. And specifically, we wanted to do a no BS guide on it. Because of 2020, a lot of uncertainty and loneliness were amplified during isolation. And quarantine uncovered so many mental health problems that we face today. Self-care became a really trendy word that a lot of people use on social media, you know, especially YouTube and Instagram. It became one of those cliches that everyone says, but are not really able to follow through with it. So today we wanted to talk about our perception of what self-care and self-improvement is, and some of the advice that we have to give to you. While self-care is important to lighten the stress, not a lot of people emphasize on self-improvement. And being that it's a trend to follow self-care, many people end up investing in these products that are heavily advertised everywhere. Yeah, it's crazy. For example, on Instagram, I always see self-help journal books, and they're super expensive. I believe that they will help some people, but is it really necessary to have 10 different kinds of self-journaling books? Yeah, exactly. We really don't need them. I think that the more we invest in these products, we really draw away from what began our self-improvement journey and end up really investing in not ourselves, but rather in high-end products that are sold for short-term effects. So in the self-help book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, the artist illuminates the key to a good life. He quotes, Don't give a fuck about more. Don't give a fuck about less. Give a fuck about only what is true and important to yourself. So basically, just give a fuck about you. (laughs) And to do that, we must completely, unflinchingly be honest with ourselves and embrace even your worst parts to become the best version of yourself. Yes, I love that book too. We're going to get into what we mean by self-care and self-improvement. And just a little disclaimer here, these are our definitions we're defining for this episode and what we're going to talk about for the topics coming up. But, uh, you know, if you go on the internet, there are so many different definitions. And also, word by no means saying that self-care is not important. And, you know, journaling or, you know, lighting a candle is still really important. But these are just some of our thoughts on self-improvement and how it gets mixed up with self-care. That being said, self-care... How we define it is when you engage in behavior to lessen stress. And a lot of times these are external, right? So like we mentioned, face masks. I'm not talking about COVID ones. (laughs) I'm talking about Korean skincare face masks. You know, lighting a candle, drinking a nice cup of tea, taking a bath, or however you choose to do self-care. These are things that tend to be more short-term effects. Like you said, we do advocate for self-care, but we want to highlight the importance of self-improvement. 
So self-improvement is an endless progress where one, we are honest with ourselves and two, recognize that there needs to be a change when there is a negative behavior. And third, to actually make that effort towards that change. We also want to recognize that self-care is a part of self-improvement. Like the parts where we are kinder to ourselves by treating ourselves, whether it be like giving ourselves a spa day or karaoke out really, really loud with our friends. But self-improvement is that extra step of understanding yourself and learning how to love the real you inside. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of our personal experience with self-care and self-improvement. So what kind of self-care do you usually do when you're stressed out, Jen? <laughs> I, I made an effort to consistently exercise, but of course that doesn't happen as as wished. I try to get some jump roping in or <laughs> go on a hike every weekend. I love to unwind by making music and painting art, drinking tea and H2O, <laughs> and spending time with the loved ones that I have. I mean, self-care for me can be an immediate stress reliever, but it gives a temporary short-term effect. Right. For me, self-care for me is walking around and listening to music. I love doing that. I think I have that embedded in me as an Asian woman that like <laughs> you just love taking a night stroll after dinner. <laughs> you know how all Asian moms do that? Oh, yes. I love that. I love taking a bath. Uh, I actually really love ASMR. Not the weird kind, but the kind that helps you relax and sleep. <laughs> and similarly to Jen, you know, this, these things I do alleviate stress that was already there, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not really a long-term solution to digging deeper and finding the root cause and then fixing that so it doesn't happen in the future. But it's very effective for, say, I have a stressful day at work mm -hmm. or um, something else and I want to wind down. So what about self-improvement? What have you done uh, to find issues within yourself and improve that? I think my journey for self-improvement began around 2018 when I first began to stand BTS. <laughs> and during that time, there was a song called Epiphany. They describe what really loving yourself meant to them. And they said that loving yourself is not so perfect, but beautiful. And that really brought things into perspective. Mm -hmm. And drawing inspiration from the fact that there is no perfect answer, it really gave me comfort and, and kickstarted that self-improvement journey. After graduating, I kind of lost my way in self-improving. This really shows the fact that self-improvement is a journey and an endless process that really requires you to adapt and learn every single day. Thanks to my supportive family and friends, I revisited my self-improvement journey and now I look deeper within me and build and grow from the yesterday and the present me towards the future me. Wow, that's beautifully said. Huh, thank you. For me, self-improvement didn't really start until I almost graduated college or right after I graduated. I think for me, it was because I met people who showed me that getting help by going to therapy or just getting help by trying to improve themselves is not weird and it's not showing weakness. Mm -hmm. From seeing that in other people, I really wanted to understand how I can improve myself. 
Because I think a lot of times in college, I kind of focused on getting a job, studying, or you know, partying. But then when I graduated, I realized that it's time to really look within myself and grow, and not you know blame other people or external factors for things that are happening, but taking charge of my life and changing. We just talked about our journey with self help and self improvement, but let's dig a little deeper into self improvement, which is what we want to focus on today. So, like I said before, there's this cliche, right, where you have to love yourself before you love another person. I literally see this everywhere, and I think it's just like one of those really quotable things that people put on mugs and stuff. But why is it so hard <laughs> to actually do? It's like one of those things where it's so much easier said than done. You can say that and put it on your wall, but、mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who, for example, say they don't want to get into a relationship because they're working on themselves. And a lot of times it's because they don't know where to begin. Even though we know we're supposed to love ourselves first, we don't even know where to begin. So we just say it instead of actually doing it. There is a fear because there's no concrete steps to take to get there. So how do you actually get there? Me and Jen really wanted to highlight the fact that loving yourself is always a work in progress. You shouldn't really make an excuse for when you're in a relationship, when you're single, or you're going through something. You should always be learning to love yourself, and we're always learning and adapting each day. So we should start the process now instead of pushing it to tomorrow. Because to love yourself, you need to dig deeper for internal growth, right? It's not just kind of the external, physical kindness. And it's the same with relationships with other people too. When you want to build a relationship with someone, you have to work on solving the root issues instead of buying each other gifts. I loved how you made a parallel between improving in relationships with others and yourself, like the digging deeper and solving the root issues. Like in my experience as a first-gen Asian American student, I had to take responsibility for myself through negatively and reinforced self-criticism. So, but I'm not really judging my parents for this because, in hindsight, they didn't have any malice intent. They were just trying to survive and keeping the whole family together. That tough love they unintentionally gave me was a negative version of self-motivation. That now I'm aware of being capable of, and currently really working on counter conditioning. I think society really teaches us how to have a relationship with your parents and family and your friends as you grow up and go to school, and maybe your significant other when you're older. But it never teaches us how to be kind to ourselves. <laughs> yeah, so just like that song called "Love Myself,"、uh, Yungi questions how loving myself is so much harder than loving others. We want to break that down by introducing a psychological model of behavior called transtheoretical model of behavior change, also known as TTM. It's broken down into five different stages, and it focuses on the decision making of the individual. So, in that first stage, we have pre-contemplation stage, also known as the unaware stage. People are more unaware that their behavior is problematic and often produces negative consequences. In stage two, we have contemplation. This is the stage where people are more aware and they actually recognize what kind of problematic behavior they have. People may still feel ambivalent towards changing their behavior because of the fear of the unknown. Because most people want to know what's going to happen in the future, and that knowledge comforts a person. 
to want to make that first step. In the book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, Frankl illustrates a space between stimulus and action. And in that space lies our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Within this space, this tiny, tiny space that we often overlook, we can choose to contemplate through awareness and recognition of the possible growth caused by this change that we will embark on. And that's where we make a decision to act. So stage three will be preparation, the determination stage. This is when people begin to take small steps towards behavioral change with the positive attitude and belief that it will lead to a healthier life. So even when you're aware that you need to do something, you need time to prepare for it. Then stage four, action. This is when they recently changed their behavior and they intend to keep moving forward with that change. And this is done through reinforcement management and counter conditioning. So people can begin to pair positive emotions to the change behavior. This is also happening in small incremental steps, right? Because you can't just change your behavior overnight. Mm -hmm. This might be surprising to some people, but there is a stage five, which is maintenance. Because even after you take action, you have to keep maintaining that behavior through habits and constant progress. This is actually a key stage because just because you make a change once towards your behavior doesn't mean that's going to persist without effort. And what's interesting about these five stages is that people might exit and re-enter at any stage, right? Because if you exit a stage one, for example, then when you come back because you want to start this process again, you're going to re-enter at stage one. And this is a really crucial element that makes the process of change adaptable and realistic and ongoing, right? Because it's not really realistic that you realize you need to change and you can just follow through with all the steps without any obstacles in the middle. So again, we want to bring a little bit more reality into this concept that's a little bit abstract. So let's talk about our own personal experiences. One of the really important stages is awareness because awareness is always the first step to change, right? Mm -hmm. But what was a time when we were not even aware that we had a problem? Because that happens all the time. Either something happens or someone points it out and then you realize, oh, maybe I'm hurting other people or I need to do something about it. For me, I would say when I graduated from college and started working, my job as a behavioral therapist, there's so much room for error. You really learn on the job. In the beginning, I was really, really scared to face the possibility of failure and overworked myself. And honestly, if you just started, you won't know as much compared to a person who's been experiencing this field for more than 10 years. And as a Korean American, that was instilled deep within to be independent and not seek for help when needed, even though when seeking for help would have been a lot easier. Ironically, we see a lot of that competitiveness even in a collective culture. And recognizing my cultural roots, it became or it helped me become more aware of what I needed to change my perspective on failure. So that's my snippet on awareness. How about you, Sam? So I came to America for college. I'm not American. When I first came to USC was when I became more immersed in you know, American culture because I live here and I study here. 
I was always really nonchalant about politics, and honestly, I was even proud to be like, "Oh, I'm apolitical. I don't care because it doesn't pertain to me. I'm not American, and also, you know, I'm young. It's not like I'm studying politics. Why do I need to know about these things?" I didn't know that was problematic until that we live in the real world. Even though I'm not American, I'm I'm a working person here now. And even if I'm not working, I live here. And politics in America affects everyone around me, all my friends, my own job. So I realized that it's not really okay to be apolitical. But this is not something that I knew about myself until something suddenly snapped at me. Yeah. So these moments of awareness can happen over time or spontaneously, like an epiphany that Sam had. Now let's move on to the second most important stage, the contemplation stage. Here is where you are aware of the problematic behaviors in your life and start questioning and considering the pros and cons of making a change. We wanted to share our experience on facing the unknown and let you know that we also struggle with mustering that courage to tackle it. Yeah, you know it's really important to highlight these things because this model, as if it's important to move forward. But sometimes you realize that there's something wrong, but you still can't take that step. For me, like I talked about in the first episode a little bit, I have this problem with working too hard. You know, at my first job, that was you know my first full time job out of college. I really had this issue because, like Jen said, I think almost in any field, when you first start out, you're not gonna be an expert, even if you learned it in the books, right?、Mm-hmm. You need experience, and you need to talk to people who have been there and done that. But I didn't realize that, so I will always take weekends or work really late to try to figure things out on my own because I didn't want to look weak. The thing is, I realized that affected my own mental health, affected my physical health, affected those around me. You know, especially my boyfriend who was there watching me being really stressed out, and it put a real strain on our relationship. But I didn't want to change because I didn't realize there were other ways to perform better at my job. I thought that I just had to keep working at it like this brute force way. And it wasn't until later that I realized that hey, you can just work more efficiently by asking for help and clarifying the expectations, gaining experience so that you get better at doing these things. It's actually not helpful to work under a lot of stress because you're not even productive. It really took a long time for me resisting making taking that step into becoming a better person and becoming a better friend, girlfriend, coworker. Yeah, do you have something like that too, Jen? The most resistance to change I felt was when I dwelt with the most change in my life, and that was freshman year of college. I had the problem of spreading myself too thin by surrounding my surrounding myself with so many quote unquote friends. I had a lot of superficial friendships. Sam knows this. <laughs> But at the end of the day, when I talked to Sam, I actually was tackling loneliness. It was weird when I go outside and hang out with my friends, and then I come back home. I felt super alone, and it's weird because you wouldn't feel that way if you had this deeper connection between people. Resistance to change I felt in that moment was: should I surround myself with a bunch of people I'm not close to, or face the reality that I'm fucking lonely? I had a hard time figuring this one out. I mean, I needed to find my comfort bubble, right? And especially because I was struggling with homesickness. And thankfully, I recognized that earlier on, 
in my second year <laughs> and created this amazing friendship with Sam. So no regrets. Yeah, I think, you know, from your experience, I'm thinking about these resistance to change. Like it happens for a reason, because, for mm -hmm. example, loneliness is not something that's easy to face. Like it's not easy to admit that you're lonely to yourself or to other people around you. Oh, yeah. There's always a reason why people don't want to change. And there's always a reason why things are easier being said than done. I mean, you mentioned before that resistance to change is very difficult to recognize because in my case, there's this thing called the tyranny of the should. And as a freshman coming into college, making friends was the number one thing in social media. I had a bunch of friends that I made on Facebook. Literally the first person you meet on campus, they would be like, hey, what's your Instagram name? <laughs> <laughs> and seeing their stories, seeing them going party and making more friends, I just thought it was the norm. And I felt that I should be doing the same thing as them. But I never really recognized what I really wanted. Through that contemplation stage, I was able to recognize it and actually make the change yes. for the better. Nice. So we just talked about the five stages of change and some of the specifics of how to do it. But like we said, it's hard, right? So what if you still feel stuck? And where do you begin changing yourself if you don't even know where to begin? Now we want to talk about some of the things that we have followed in our own lives or we found really effective. Because for me, I really wish someone would have told me these things back when I was trying to start my self-improvement journey. But yeah, let's get into it. All right, so solution number one lies in the social interactions between people. I'm a huge advocate of how people grow in connections with others. Through these DMCs, people can learn and support one another through personal growth. These DMCs can become starter conversations with the people that you have around you to really go through that self-exploratory journey with each other and recognize that personal growth starts with that one will to act. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to realize that sometimes your friends and family or a significant other can actually point out what you need to change. And I realize that I think people are even more resistant to other people telling them what to do than themselves. <laughs> because let's be real. No one wants to hear, you know, you should do this and that. You'd be like, no, I'm not going to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> like you said, it's important because sometimes you don't, what if you're stuck in that stage where you're not aware, right? But sometimes these are hints that other people might be giving you that, hey, you might want to look into this. And if you do suddenly realize that there's no one around you who can support you, like, might be time to start seeking outside of your comfort bubble for that. I agree with that because I think sometimes even though you're surrounded by a lot of people, going back to that freshman year example of yours, there might be people around you that are not really trying to do the same things. So then you actually don't feel that support and you don't know who to talk to about these things. Yeah. Once you step out of that comfort bubble, like just like I did in freshman year, you start really improving yourself. Once you really are on that journey to self-improvement, you'll start to notice that you are attracting more supportive people. Thankfully, I now am surrounded by more supportive people because of the fact that I developed stronger social ties with these people around me. Yeah, it's like that saying where your closest friends are a reflection of who you are. 
especially the older you get, the more you don't have proximity friends, but really you surround yourself with people you're similar to,、mm-hmm. right? Maybe a good way to start is to surround yourself with people who are also trying to improve themselves and can help you. Yeah, I mean, I find myself acting like Sam every now and then too. <laughs> I mean, we honestly finish each other's sentences all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're like, bro, bro, did you feel that connection right there? Or it's that thing where you look across the room and you make eye contact and you know exactly what each other's talking about. Like we just said, it's important to seek help from those around you, right? But there are also things that you can do on your own. So our second solution is mindfulness. And now I know some of you think that mindfulness sounds like a bunch of BS because that's exactly how I felt. And for the longest time, I always see the quote, "Be mindful," and I'm like, "Okay, I'm already trying to work on myself. Like, what does that even mean?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. There's science behind it, though, and I think I really understood it because I'm a visual learner. When I saw this diagram or this picture, it's someone saying something mean to themselves, right? So a lot of times we're very self-critical. Maybe you tell yourself, you know, you're not working hard enough, or people don't like you. But then outside of that thought bubble, there's another bubble where you're looking in at yourself and realizing that, oh, I'm having these negative thoughts. This is not really the reality. It's my emotions coming out, right? It's like another level. It's not your logical level; it's your emotion level. So it's really kind of you recognizing your own behavior, telling the voice inside of your head to be kinder to yourself, or really to ignore the shitty ones. Because no matter how hard we try, we're going to be kind of mean to ourselves sometimes. But it's important to start recognizing that. Oh, I'm being kind of mean to myself. I'm not going to listen to that. And so it's really about rerouting your brain to think more positively. Biological too, right? Because we know that negative experiences are more memorable to us because they help us with survival instincts, and humans are supposed to learn from their mistakes. So we want to reroute our brains to think more positively, and we need to remember that there are positive experiences as well, and not that these negative ones overtake everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even in cognitive science, we call it metacognition, and that. Defined as critical awareness of one's thinking and learning, and this is the process that's used to plan and monitor and access one's understanding and performance. Once you practice this even more, that little voice becomes even louder and louder, and then you'll become in more control of the emotional level that that Sam described of, and add on to that rational thinking and really owning those emotions. Yeah. So next time, if you catch yourself saying something negative, try to remember that that is just a different voice inside your head, the not nice one. And there are many, many versions of ourselves, and we can choose to listen to the ones where it makes us happy and it makes us a better person. We talked about relying on people around us. We talked about different things that we can try ourselves. But I think it's also very important to talk about knowing when to seek professional help from others when you can't help yourself. And this is not to say that you're weak if you feel like, oh, I want to become better or I have a problem and I don't know how to do it myself. It's it's not being weak. What therapists do is that they help guide the self exploration by proposing the right questions. Telling someone about your issues in life, and because you're too close to it, you might not be able to see the big picture. But another trained professional see these patterns; they can recognize them, right? They can help to define those patterns and behaviors, 
and then they can provide a safe space to practice the self-realization. And then you can both then come up with a plan for positive change. Yeah, another comforting thing about working with a therapist is that there is this dual relationship between the client and the therapist. I don't think there's a stronger relationship than that because they are there for solely for you. But they rely on these concrete techniques to teach you and guide you through the self-realization process. So it's just all about you. And I think that itself is a very comforting experience and having that space where someone will listen to you actively can help you even relieving yourself of all that internal stress that you hold. On a related note, I wanted to make a distinction between relying on a friend and seeking professional help. Sometimes we can rely on that one supportive friend that provides that therapeutic emotional release. I mean, that one friend that we have to cry on or that awesome friend that will bring you tacos and tequila shots at 3 a.m. in the morning to rant about their problems. <laughs> Wait, where do I have tacos at 3 a.m.? Please let me know. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, okay. But I don't regret those nights one bit. But the thing is... If this becomes your go-to thing to do when you have the slightest problem, that frequent emotional dumping can be overwhelming and stressful for that person that you find so significant. I believe that in a strong relationship, there's respect and boundaries set for both people to independently grow. And a therapist can provide that. The therapist can provide the emotional release while setting those boundaries for you. Uh, These people are trained to appropriately guide you in your self-exploratory journey and provide you the right tools to tackle the problems you are dealing with. Yeah, and... You know, I think a lot of people have this idea that therapy is only for people who are suffering through very severe depression, anxiety, other things are on a clinical level. But if you can afford therapy, first of all, because in America, I know therapy is very expensive and not affordable to everyone. But if you have access to it, I don't think you need to think of yourself as someone who has like very serious problems to go to therapy. Because as long as you want to work on yourself, that is a resource there for you. Uh, You don't need to have a disease that you can name in a book. But when you're feeling uncertain, that is a person who has all the right resources to help you out of that slump. You know, therapists can be intimidating, right? I think just taking that first step and saying I'm going to therapy makes you think that, oh my god, there's something really wrong with me or it's like shameful. But just remember that, first of all, like, I think a lot of people now are also like helping normalize going to therapy if you can afford it. And then second of all, remember that therapy by design is not supposed to last forever. Once you get to a point where you feel like you're more aware of your own problems and you and the therapist both agree that you are on some level of improvement or you're on the right path and you have now the techniques that you learned, whether that's like, you know, very concrete, like, okay, if If you're feeling anxious, then you can do this breathing exercise to more abstract things like finding out the root causes and like your past traumas. Once you get to a certain level where you feel like, I can do this on my own now, you're supposed to stop. Like therapists don't, unless they're a really bad one that just wants your money, (laughs) their career by design is supposed to not have permanent clients that stay with them forever. Recently, Jen actually recommended me a book to read, and it's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. 
And it's amazing because it's talking about a therapist's own experience with with going to therapy, and I think it just it's so meta, and it shows you that everyone can use a helping hand. And we learned so much from this book; we would not stop talking about it to everyone around us. Yeah, I can go on and on and on about this book.、Um, it's one of my favorites. I mean, this book talks about. Uh, the different perspectives of of a practicing therapist exploring the world of therapy as both a client and also a therapist. I mean, she captures the struggles and vulnerabilities of being human, while intertwining stories about her past clients. She really talks about the life lessons she's unconsciously learned. And the failures she's encountered throughout that time, and how these everyday disruptive thoughts that she has, the little voices,、mm-hmm. and how that those little voices can be broken down in therapy. I think that this book really motivated me to be introspective and understanding, really understanding of the unknown world of therapy, and really helped me become more open to it because of the fact that. It's a comforting experience, right?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a part I really like too is so she uses her own example, but also a couple of clients, and you know the stories are kind of intertwined. But you kind of see a progression of their journey, right, with therapy with themselves, and you、mm-hmm. see regressions all the time. Like her client will come in about a problem, they'll talk about it, and then they'll come back another week and they did the exact same thing. So you see that people are not perfect, but Like we said, going back to the beginning, well, change is like a constant moving circle, right? The most important thing is that you are aware of it and you are willing to do something to change yourself. Yeah, and just to say, both of us are not good at this at all. We're learning every day. Oh yeah, we are no experts at this. So, really hope that we can also hear some stories coming from you guys. Maybe you can teach us a thing or two, and we can all, you know, try to become better people. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to hear more episodes on different topics, you can find us on Anchor.fm/DMCWithAFriend. If you want to share your stories and experiences with us too. Please follow us on our Instagram DMC with a friend. And as always, thank you so much for the support, and we hope that you will tune in next time.